Welcome to On the Middle East, the podcast of the award-winning media service, El Monitor, where each week we talk with the decision makers and thought leaders who are making the news and shaping the trends in the Middle East. I'm Andrew Parasoliti, president of El Monitor, and this week we'll be talking about the United Arab Emirates, including the impact of COVID-19 on the UAE and the region, what we can expect in a post-COVID-19 future in the Middle East, UAE policy toward countries in the region, Iran, Yemen, Libya, and, and more. And we're going to have this conversation with a very special guest, His Excellency Yusuf El Otaiba. He is the UAE ambassador to the United States. I'll be back with a few introductory comments and then the interview with Ambassador El Otaiba after this short break. What does the post-corona environment in the UAE look like? You know, we were already marching towards a knowledge-based economy, you know, investing in technology and AI and things that address the future. And I think what Corona is doing for us is making those plans go much, much faster. Welcome back to On the Middle East. So even while managing the impact of COVID-19 and with a projected 3.3% economic contraction as a result of both the pandemic and the downturn in oil prices, the United Arab Emirates nonetheless has an eye on the future. That is how to learn from the crisis and adapt technology to improve governance and efficiency for the post-COVID-19 era. Now, indeed, the UAE has institutionalized thinking about the future. They they have a cabinet, Ministry of Cabinet Affairs, which they call the Ministry of Cabinet Affairs and the Future. They have a 30-year-old Minister of Artificial Intelligence, and he was the first ever AI minister appointed anywhere back in 2017. And the UAE also has a virtual Ministry of Possibilities to come together on the really tough challenges, again, thinking about the future. Now, I'm pleased to talk about the impact of the pandemic and developments in the region and what we can learn today to shape the post-COVID-19 Middle East with Yusuf el the UAE ambassador to the United States. Ambassador el has had an impressive run as ambassador since he took the post in 2008, 12 years ago. Since that time, the UAE has been the number one destination for U.S. exports to the Middle East. Ambassador el also played a key role in the U.S.-UAE Civil Nuclear Cooperation Agreement of 2009, and we're going to talk about that. el has also directed to manage the UAE's substantial philanthropy in the United States, which has served to institutionalize and expand partnerships with top educational and public health institutions. Now, I've known Yusuf el for about 20 years. He has made his mark as an unusually effective diplomat and representative of his country, as well as a champion of the U.S.-UAE relationship, which has always been strong and has really taken off on his watch. And as you will hear in the interview, and what tends to be emblematic of UAE leaders I speak to, and even in the midst of this present pandemic, Ambassador Al-Taiba and the UAE keeps a focus on the future, that is, about what lessons can be learned and how we manage the pandemic in order to address and shape the post-COVID-19 era, as well as the many challenges facing us in the region, 
that you all know well regarding uh, Iran, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, and the wars in Yemen, Syria, and Libya. And we'll get into all of that now. I'm delighted to welcome Ambassador Yusuf El Ataiba. He's the ambassador of the United Arab Emirates to the United States. Ambassador, welcome to On the Middle East. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Let's get right into it uh, and talk about COVID-19. Now, what's been fascinating to me in looking at this is your country has 10 million people. As of today, you have over 34,000 cases and just 264 deaths. Now, you're a smaller country than the United States. The U.S. has 30 times more people, but that mortality rate, fatality rate, is about 0.7%, if I'm doing my math right, and the world rate is about 6% as of today. What can we learn from what the UAE is doing, and how can that inform our policies? Thanks, Andrew. And I think that's probably the most important question that we're all trying to figure out together. Uh, I think where the UAE has succeeded, because um, I, I don't think even the 264 deaths are 264 too many. We hope that you know no one has ever, no one would have suffered or passed away from something like this. I, I think why we have managed to get out in front of this is we started early. Uh, I was back home in December and remember seeing our national security advisor give daily briefings to the conference on the coronavirus. And back then, no one thought it would be where we are today. So I think I, I don't want to say that we foresaw exactly how it unfolded, but I think that it's safe to say that we had planned early and got and it got everything ready from healthcare to uh, regulations and uh, procedures that were put in place. 34,000 is still a high number of cases, but the opposite, the flip side of that is we've managed to test over 20% of the population of the country. So as you were saying, 10 million people, we've just passed the 2 million test mark and we plan to keep going. That gives us an incredible amount of data on where the cases are, how to deal with them, what to isolate, what not to isolate, and we had really, really strict restrictions putting in place in terms of movement and travel. Those are slowly becoming a little lighter and a little easier. But I think it's important to have a whole of government approach. We are talking as a whole of government when it comes to transportation, healthcare, economics, uh, food security, everything you can possibly imagine has been pulled into a team that looks at everything and then makes decisions based on a whole of government approach. I think to the extent you, we can be seen as having been successful, it's probably because of that kind of approach. Ambassador, I was talking to um, one of our mutual friends in, in the UAE, and we were talking about how, living there during the virus, and he was uh, praising uh, the government's approach. He said tests are easy to get, and, and uh, correct me if this is wrong, but he also said if someone tests positive, they are hospitalized. So a, a person is identified and immediately given, given treatment. Absolutely. And I think that is exactly why the death rate is so low. And at point seven is everyone gets the treatment they need if they have then you know, detected as positive. But also, once you are detected as positive, we then identify where you are, what places need to be on tighter lockdowns and so on. 
So, so I, I think there is a standardized approach to this, and I think that's why we have been effective in at least understanding how to deal with corona. Yes, there have been reports that the cases of coronavirus have been um, concentrated in the expat worker communities in the Gulf. Has, has your country's experience uh, seen that as well? It, it, it is, and um, I don't have the data and the breakdown, but I also know we have Emiratis who have detected positive. We had you know, Western expats, uh, expats from the migrant community and construction sector. We've had it across the board because if you look at the UAE, it is a, a very diverse environment. So in places where um, staff and employees have been mingling and mixing with travelers who have just come back, possibly with the virus, that's where the, um, that's where the exposure has been the greatest. That's why you saw such strict lockdowns and things like 24-hour curfews. It, it's been going up and down, obviously, as people are either strict with social distancing or not strict with social distancing. But we plan to continue to monitor these things and make sure that the spread is limited. But as you can see, people are starting to open up only once they have the kind of confidence that they have certain areas or certain questions under control. Tell me about the testing procedures you have uh, on your airlines and in, in your malls. I mean, this has also been very forward-looking. Uh, and as you mentioned, the whole of government approach in dealing with transportation, and including airlines and public transportation. How are you dealing with that? Well, I, I think people are still reluctant, to, even, even with the restrictions and the guidelines and the testing. I, I know people are still reluctant to go out. Uh, people are still uncomfortable with being in uh, public places or being on planes unless they absolutely have to. We're trying to make it as safe as possible for those who feel that they need to go somewhere. So when you go to a mall, you are there are there are age limits. Uh, if you are below a certain age, you can't get in. If you are above a certain age, you can't get in. There are restrictions on numbers. The mall should not have more than X number of people based on the size of the mall at any given point. There are sterilization. There is every single night there is a curfew in place. So the cities, the public areas are all sterilized. So we're trying to create an environment that is safe, um, that is healthy. But even with that, there's still a lot of people who are resistant to being out in public. Let me ask about another dimension of how um, you've dealt with uh, COVID-19 in the UAE. Uh, and it's that it's in your foreign policy. I, I read the other day, again, if, if this is out of date, uh, the UAE has sent over 657 tons of medical supplies and provided assistance to 57 countries. Uh, how uh, That seems to me, while you're dealing with the economic impact of both the virus and lower oil prices, uh, that's quite a commitment. Tell us a little about how you envisioned the UAE's role and your COVID-19 diplomacy. Yeah, Andrew, you're very well informed. Uh, it is about 650 plus tons, and my latest data has 62 countries that we've supplied some form of assistance to, and it runs the gamut from, you know, ventilators and PPEs to testing kits and other medical supplies uh, even to the United States, we donated 500,000 test kits early on when testing was hard to get here in the U.S. 
I think the view is that unless the entire world is able to deal with Corona, we will not overcome Corona. So if we solve it in Europe, but not Asia, or in the US, but not Africa, we haven't really solved it. And so I think the view from the leadership is we have to help those countries who don't have the types of resources or cap capacity to test, identify, and deal with Corona. Because like other big challenges, like climate change or other pandemics, we have to do this together. And I think that's why you see such a diversity in the types of assistance we've been helping, uh, whether it's in Africa and Asia or Europe or even the United States. Uh, our view is we have to tackle Corona everywhere if we're going to overcome this. UAE has even sent uh, medical supplies, I think at least two shipments to Iran. Uh, the Iranian and your foreign ministers have spoken by phone. Uh, the yep. diplomatic tone, which has been acrimonious in the past, seems warmer. Uh, I read the Iranian foreign ministry a while back said it will never forget the contribution the UAE ha has offered during this time. Now, I know uh, I was in the UAE in November and uh, Minister of State Foreign Affairs Anwar Gargas spoke about the UAE's dynamic diplomacy, the potential for strong regional multilateralism. This is before COVID-19 and yeah. a potential path for dealing with Iran. And now you have this opportunity where you've reached out during their time of need and everyone's time of need, as you said, it's a collective yeah. challenge. Thinking more about Iran, uh, do you see this as a, a kind of one-off during the COVID-19 uh, crisis? Or, or do you think there's a, a potential for change in relations and in Iran's role in the region? Well, I, I can answer the first part, which is how we are looking at assistance in general, not just to Iran or other countries. I, I think we look at assistance on corona or as not a political issue. If, if a country needs help, let, let's take the political and policy implications aside for now and try to help each other as human beings. Again, back to the earlier point is we are not, we as a, as a international community are not going to beat or overcome Corona unless all of us overcome Corona. So whether it's Iran or any other country, regardless of how our relationship looks with them, I think at the very human level, uh, we need to help others who need that help. Now, whether that assistance or that gesture changes other countries' policies towards us, that is for them to answer. Does you know our assistance on Corona to Iran changes Iran's behavior? I don't know. We'll see. Um, uh, I think it's too early to try to judge that, but I, I don't want to get into um, speculation that, oh, because we helped country X or Y, that's going to fundamentally alter the relationship. There are so many other factors involved for that analysis that it's, I think it would be premature to make that judgment call right now. Ambassador, you worked on counter-proliferation issues in the previous position for your government, and you, you remain deeply involved in those matters. You've overseen uh, the U.S.-UAE Civil Nuclear Cooperation Agreement, and you wrote a piece in the Wall Street Journal back in March with your thoughts on how Iran could show good intentions with regard to its nuclear program. You referred to the U.S.-UAE Civil Nuclear Agreement as, as the gold standard. Tell us a little about that, and do you see any signs that uh, Iran is, is 
receptive to that type of idea? Well, I don't know if Iran's receptive, but I know it hasn't really been positioned. It hasn't been used as a template. You know, when we started thinking about approaching and studying nuclear power, we did it because we had significant and real uh, energy needs. Most people don't actually know that even though we're a you know, major oil exporter, we are a net importer of nat natural gas. And as the economy continues to grow, it was really important for us to have secure, safe um, supply of energy. And that's why we looked at nuclear. When we then began to look at how to do nuclear, we realized that the best, safest, and most efficient way of getting nuclear energy is to forego the enrichment and reprocessing, which is also the most dangerous part of the program. So we came up with this model, which we then negotiated with Congress and specifically with my good friend, Congressman Howard Berman at the time. And Congress Berman, Congressman Berman said, this should be the way forward. This should be the gold standard or how we do nuclear cooperation with any country going forward. So we tried to help and we created this model, this template where you are able to deliver nuclear energy by leasing the fuel from any other country and passing up the enrichment and reprocessing stage. We would love for any other country, Iran or not Iran, to, to try to use that model because it has been proven that one, it is safe and the world, the international community will be very supportive on. Two, you actually make your timeline a lot shorter. The financial commitment is much smaller. So it makes sense from every single angle you study this from. Now, I think we have not done a good enough job. I think we still have the opportunity to position this as the way forward for any country who wants to do it. Of course, some countries will choose not to, and that's their sovereign decision. But it is really hard to argue when you go to Iran or anyone else and say, if you really want nuclear energy, this is the right, safe, and secure way to do it. And we will support you if you, approach, if you take this approach, as opposed to having covert enrichment plans. So I, I think we just have not done a good enough job of pushing that model as the standard. UAE and the U.S. have been uh, very close in terms of how uh, it sees the uh, security situation in the Gulf, how it sees the threat from Iran. Um, do you support the Trump administration stepping back from the nuclear deal? Well, I think we need to see what Iran is going to do. I mean, I, I think we're at a moment where there are tensions in the region there's a maximum pressure campaign, there's a coronavirus, there's tensions all around the region. I think it's important to try to de-escalate, make sure things don't get any more unstable in what has become a very unstable region. But I, I don't know if we're gonna see any change of behavior between now and November. I honestly don't think anything substantial will happen. We'll see what Iran wants to do. I, I understand the maximum pressure campaign has had a massive economic toll on Iran. Corona has come in and added to that toll. And now the coronavirus, I'm sorry, the low oil prices have also added to that toll. So I, I, I don't know how Iran views the current situation. The Trump administration has made it clear to all of us uh, that their ultimate goal is to go back into talks and reach another better deal, a deal that uh, covers the shortcomings of JCPOA, which are regional behavior, missiles, and a variety of other issues. So if, if 
if Iran is willing to come back to the table and negotiate another deal, I think that's, that's exactly what the United States is hoping to see. I just don't know if that's in the cards anytime between now and November. Let's turn uh, quickly to the UAE position on the Israeli-Palestinian issue. You said when the plan was launched in January that it offers an important starting point for a return to negotiations within the U.S.-led international framework. Now, since then, Prime Minister Netanyahu has said he will proceed with the legislation on July 1st to extend sovereignty over Israeli settlements in the West Bank and Jordan Valley. That was part of his deal with Benny Gantz to set up an emergency unity government. And since then, uh, there's been the Arab League meeting, which referred to such a move as a potential war crime. The UAE position at the time was this is a dangerous development. And Minister Gargash just said today, uh, the talk of annexation, quote, must stop. Do you think this the, the Trump plan is still a good start for dialogue? And is dialogue possible if Israel goes ahead on July 1st with annexation legislation? So I think you read the statement very accurately, but, but what I was trying to say also was it's a starting point. Sit down, give it a try, see if it works, say what you like, say what you don't like, but it should be a starting point. And it may or may not, you know, produce anything, but we haven't seen any negotiations. And I'm glad you referenced Dr. Anwar's uh, tweet because I would have brought it up myself. We think that kind of decision will only take matters and make the, uh, what is an unstable region at the moment even more unstable. It will put incredible amount of political pressure on our friends in Jordan. It will risk inflaming public opinion. This kind of step, as I've told our friends here, is not the same as the American embassy being moved from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. The American embassy move, it's an American embassy. The Americans have the right to put it wherever they want. This is fundamentally different, and I think it will be seen as escalation, and it will create tensions in the region that absolutely do not need tension. So we've been saying this publicly and privately. Obviously, countries make their own decisions, but you know, we, we cannot then come back and say that the UAE were not clear and concise and articulating their view of what this will do. Now, the Palestinian leadership has announced that it's severing agreements with the U.S. and Israel as a result of Netanyahu's uh, stated plans to go ahead uh, on July 1st. The details of what all that means is still uh, a little unclear. But do you think that's, that's a good move by President Abbas? I, I don't think it's a good move, but I also think that the Palestinians have really very little options left at their disposal. I, mean, I, I think this is kind of like I'm giving up, I'm throwing my cards in and then, you know, take here's the keys, you're in charge. So I, I don't know if they have many other, you know, options left at their disposal. I, I, like we said earlier, there are things you can like in the plan, there are things you can not like in the plan. But ultimately, this is up for the Palestinians and the Israelis to sit down and decide together. And we haven't seen that. So I, I just think cooler heads need to prevail and we need to get back to a place where there is some form of dialogue between the two sides. And maybe that dialogue produces something, maybe it doesn't. But right now, we're not even talking to each other. Palestinian leadership also, uh, at least initially, rejected aid sent by you uh, to them through Tel Aviv airport. 
what ha what happened there and how how did that incident play out i honestly don't know what happened there i you know i i wish i did you know like i said we're trying to help people who desperately need help uh i'm disappointed that that help will not reach poor palestinians who need that help regardless of what the reason is whether it's politics or miscommunication or whatever there are you know a hundred ways that could have been handled better so i'm i'm a bit disappointed but really, uh, one friend of mine here said, I feel bad for you. I said, don't feel bad for me. Feel bad for the poor Palestinians who are not going to get the ventilators they need because of this decision. That's who I feel bad for. Let me, let me turn to uh, another uh, conflict uh, in the region that's, that's closer to home uh, for the UAE, uh, you know, Yemen. Uh, many people I've noticed experience surprise if you start a conversation or article about Yemen by noting it has 28 million people mm. half are under 19 this is a, a lost generation or becoming one and uh, mm. I, I've used the term that at least in principle given the size of Yemen its its location uh, it's really should be too big to fail because it risks chronic conflict and poverty with regional implications and I could have said that, you could have said that before COVID-19, right? They had a malaria crisis in 2018, 2019. Yeah. Now I'm reading this week that the UN has cut 75% of its programs in Yemen uh, and had to reduce operations there. Uh, tell us you, you kind of your sense, the UAE sense of the conflict in Yemen, what your position is and how you see the efforts. The UN has tried really hard with the yeah. Saudi-backed effort at a ceasefire, which the UAE supported. Where are we now? Where's it going? And what would you like to see happen? So we've, we're coming up on the one-year mark of UAE military withdrawal from Yemen, with the exception of CT operations. But yeah, I think June, July will be the one-year mark where most of our forces have withdrawn from the civil war in Yemen. Um, I think it's also important just to note, even though people tend to politicize the Yemen argue, argument uh, a lot, uh, and that we were asked to come and join in the Yemen war. We were asked by the Yemeni government. We were then asked as a GCC, and then there was a declaration by the Arab League that gave us a mandate to go into Yemen to restore the legitimate government. We then went to the UN Security Council and got resolution 2216. So we had an international mandate to essentially restore the Hadi government. And, and we were in Yemen for several years, uh, the Yemen war became very politicized, but all this began in the Obama administration. I just want to remind people of that. We're out of Yemen, and unfortunately, the problem now is not that the coalition is doing X or Y, that the Yemenis themselves cannot come to an agreement. Um, you know, we've worked with Martin Griffith very, very closely, very closely. I remember, you know, being in touch with him on a daily basis at one point. The problem now is not just between the Houthis on one side and the Hadi government on the other side. The problem is fragmenting. You have the Southern tradition, uh, Transitional Council now who has declared that they want to be autonomous. So you have a disagreement among Yemeni factions about what the future of Yemen looks like. That's not a problem for the coalition or the UN. That's a problem the Yemenis have to resolve amongst themselves. We've been trying to help. We've been trying to, you know, encourage people to come and sit down and talk and figure out what the future looks like. But again, like the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, if the sides themselves 
cannot come to an agreement. If the sides themselves, one of them wants to go independent or is frustrated with the other side, that's not a problem for the UAE or for Saudi or the UN. Um, the difference I see in Yemen today versus a couple years ago is Saudi is fully invested right now in trying to find a political solution. The Saudis have been trying to bring all the sides to the table to find a political solution for the long-term stability for, for Yemen. And I think they are heading in the right direction, but I think the challenge has been the Yemeni parties themselves cannot come to an agreement. And that's not a problem any outsider can fix for them. Is it your sense that uh, Iran, which uh, still maintains relationships with, with the Houthis there, has been helpful, harmful uh, to the process? Are they engaged at all in a constructive way? I would say, <laughs> given what we've gone through and endured, I can't say that outside uh, roles of any country has been helpful in Yemen. Um, I think it's probably prolonged the conflict and unfortunately politicized the conflict. I mean, remember having meetings in Congress and you know articles in the New York Times and whatnot that really looked at one side of the problem of Yemen and, and failed to understand what the other side was doing to prolong the conflict. Nobody talked about Houthi child soldiers. Nobody talked about the million mines that the Houthis planted or about the weapons that they received from outside countries. And so I think the Yemen debate from what I saw here in the US honestly was not an objective debate. I think people looked at one side of the problem and that was it and failed to understand why the other side is carrying on the way it is. And here we are almost a year since our exit from Yemen. The problem hasn't been resolved. So, you know, I ask the same people who we talk to is, you know, why is Yemen less important to you today than it was a year ago? And why are you not as worried about the future of Yemen like you were a year or two ago? I think it's important that this issue remains central because, you know, it, it, it's not going to go away if we don't support the future of Yemen. But at the end of the day, Yemenis need to come to that conclusion as well. Let me ask about Libya. Uh, the UAE is, um, seems, has been concerned about the orientation and policies of the government in which uh, Turkey has now taken a, a very active role. We've been covering this in great detail at El Monitor. Tell us uh, your view of the situation in Libya, how you see that civil conflict playing out, and how you assess Turkey's involvement. So in January 19th, I believe it was, there was a big conference in Berlin. There were certain um, outcomes that were agreed to in that conference. And I can tell you today that we have completely uh, remained committed to every outcome that we have been, that we have promised in Berlin. Um, we support a political process. Dr. Anwar again has publicly and privately said we need a political solution. We support a ceasefire. We need a nationwide ceasefire. We were hoping either Ramadan or the Eid holidays create that opening for that ceasefire. I don't believe it is held, even though some parties have declared that they are sticking to the ceasefire. Um, unfortunately, we've seen a flow of extremist mercenaries being flown into Libya from outside. Thousands, my open source data says up to 8,000, if not more. And so I, I think it's not getting better. I don't think the situation is getting under control. I mean, there is a consensus in the international community that we want to bring this to an end. If we start with a ceasefire, move on to political dialogue, 
but as long as you know thousands of extremist groups are flying in without any consequence, I don't understand how Libya gets under control, unfortunately. We, we think that the next step is for the two sides, Khalifa Haftar's side and Saraj's side, to sit down in the five plus five talks and figure out a way forward. Um, I just, I don't know if that's going to happen imminently or not. Let me turn to Syria. There was some buzz last year about the UAE sending a business delegation to a trade fair. And then reports, I think last month or in April, I should say, uh, that um, uh, Abu Dhabi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Zayed spoke with Syrian President uh, Bashar al-Assad. Uh, what's the UAE position on Syria at this point? I think there is some frustration that the main decision makers on the fate of Syria tend to be a group of non-Arab countries. And so I think the outreach is, is kind of driven by the notion that Arab countries need to be involved with the future of Syria. And it doesn't mean we condone or we support, it just needs, means we need to be involved. I think the uh, abandoning Syria has only opened the door for other countries to be involved in Syria. So that kind of approach you were highlighting, Andrew, just means we're trying to understand what the future of Syria looks like to open a channel. Doesn't mean we're supporting. It doesn't mean we are helping. It doesn't mean we're condoning. It just means let's keep our options open and let's keep a channel of communication open at this point. Turn quickly to uh, Qatar. Do you see any uh, prospects for bearing the hatchet with, with Qatar? Are you optimistic, uh, pessimistic about where relations are and how do you see that playing out? Unfortunately, I don't. And, and not and mainly because I haven't seen any change of behavior. I haven't seen any indication that Qatar is, wants to resolve the conflict. You know, we were pressured at the beginning of the rift to issue demands to resolve the conflict. We did. And, you know, here we are coming up on the three year mark. I don't see any evidence of Qatari desire to fix the problem. On the contrary, they, I think, have chosen to prioritize their relationship with a variety of other countries and groups, uh, like the Muslim Brotherhood and others. Uh, and if they feel that's more important to them, that that's their sovereign decision. But don't think they are serious about resolving the conflict. And if they want to, they know where to find us. Uh, <laughs> they know my email address. They can reach me. Um, Ambassador, let me, uh, as we, we wind down here to the end of the show, let me ask you about your role as ambassador uh, here in Washington. I mean, you are known as one of the most successful, high-profile, impactful Washington ambassadors. If you were advising someone just coming in, uh, how would you advise them to navigate Washington politics, including in what seems uh, to be an often highly polarized political environment? Yeah, so I, you know, this July will be my 12th, 12th year here, or I'll have completed 12 years in Washington. And 12 years ago, Washington was not this polarized. You know, Washington was not this divided. There were people like, like Chuck Hagel, like Evan Bayh, like Howard Berman, like Ted Kennedy and John McCain that were in office. And these people were moderates and centrists who would come together and come to the middle and make compromises. Foreign policy was largely consistent. Even, even when 
you went from George Bush to Obama or from Bill Clinton to President Bush, I think foreign policy remained largely on track. And I think this polarization is driving the U.S. to be more, um, uh, to be the foreign policy will fluctuate from right to left a little more frequently. And so I don't think that's healthy. I, I think as for other countries, U.S. foreign policy needs to be consistent. And I'm worried that the environment we're in, and it is, there's uh, dozens of reasons. I mean, that's a separate podcast altogether of why we are in such a polarized environment. Um, I hope we get back to more centrist, more moderate, more uh, stable policies. I don't know if that's in the cards, but my advice to anyone coming in is just get out and meet people. I think that's a challenge obviously in the current environment, but build relationships with people everywhere. Uh, I, I think trying to you know, take sides in issues that have become very divisive is going to be very challenging. And it's probably not in the best interests of many other countries. So you have to build relationships with everyone, not just with the administration, with Congress, with governors, with mayors, with think tanks, with education institutions. I mean, that's what we have done. Uh, and because it's because of the importance of the relationship that we, we prize on the United States, it's not just the administration. We learned that lesson in 2006 during the Dubai ports world. So my advice is to not just get out and around in DC, get out and around in the country. Try to make sure people around the country understand what your country stands for, what your country reflects and views. I think it's really important, especially for Arab countries, for that understanding to be beyond the beltway as well. And how are you doing this during uh, the lockdown uh, quarantine, as it were, where movement's restricted, it's more difficult to have meetings, you're uh, relationship-oriented, that's been key to, to your success. How are you doing diplomacy during this time? So, like, uh, you know, we've adapted. We're doing a lot of Zoom meetings and conference calls. I, Looking at my schedule, I have a Zoom board meeting in a few weeks. Um, so I think, I think people are just going to do more of this virtual engagements for the time being until people feel safe enough to travel and get out and around. Um, and I don't think that will happen until we see a vaccine or a reliable cure. But, I, you know, in preparation for this conversation, I was trying to understand what we in the, in the UAE are going to be doing, you know, post-corona. What does the post-corona environment in the UAE look like? And what I gathered was, you know, we were already marching towards a knowledge-based economy you know, investing in technology and AI and things that address the future. And I think what Corona is doing for us is making those plans go much, much faster. I think we are accelerating whatever it is we were planning to do anyway. So food security is a major priority for us. We've had a food minister, food security minister in place for about three years now. Her programs are becoming one of the most important programs uh, in the country right now to make sure we have enough food security in the country in the event of a future pandemic. AI. AI is now on fast forward. How can we get AI to help us as a government? Education. Uh, I think the future of it, education around the world is going to look fundamentally different post-corona. Even if schools come back and universities come back next fall, there's going to be a hybrid solution where there's going to be significantly more online and virtual gatherings and all obviously some in-class stuff. 
But I think the world is going to be different. You know, businesses are going to look at each other and say, do I really need all this office space if half or a quarter of my workforce can work from home? Do I really need to travel and do all these travels if we can do these meetings virtually? So I think every institution, whether it's a government or a business or a university, is trying to wrestle with these questions right now. How do we operate going forward? What is necessary and what isn't? And we as a government are doing exactly that. And I think our conclusion is, you know, we're going to be much more efficient, much leaner, um, much less bureaucratic as a government, especially when it comes to providing services. So, you know, I, I am positive that any government service you will need from the UAE will be online if it's not already online, whether it's paying a parking ticket or getting uh, approval to open a shop or a company. We're going to be very um, responsive in terms of government services, and we're going to be very responsive when it comes to implementing technology and how we operate. I think that's how we're looking at it from our from the UAE standpoint. I'm sure other countries are looking at the same things, but I know we are going to be very, very focused on these types of issues. It's fascinating the way you, you describe it because in the midst of a crisis which requires day-to-day -day management where people are, mm -hmm. are sick and uh, there has to be testing and some people uh, you know, uh, suffer greatly under this, the economic implications, to also be thinking about the day after uh, COVID-19 and, and how, what have we learned? What are we learning, I guess, is right. one, one evolves that process. And it's, it's really fascinating. You mentioned AI, and you know, I've uh, in, interviewed for our monitor, uh, Minister Obama, uh, mm -hmm. and I've always been uh, fascinated by his uh, and your uh, engagement with the role of AI and delivery of services? Where does it fit? How can it be most efficient? What type of partnerships can be involved? And when you're talking about something as intensive as public health, like COVID-19, uh, like you say, it spills over into every aspect of, of, our, of, of our lives. Let me end on one question. I, it doesn't always get as many headlines as some of the other uh, issues we've talked about today, although it's uh, directly related to what we're talking about now. And that's Kind of in the soft power realm, uh, as ambassador, um, I noticed in preparing. I knew this, but just reading it again as I was getting ready to talk to you today, that you've overseen a, a 180 million dollar 10 year donation to the Children's National Hospital in D.C., including the development of the Sheikh Zayed Institute for Pediatric Surgical Innovation. You've got a partnership with the Cleveland Clinic. You've provided assistance to U.S. communities impacted by Hurricanes Irma and Sandy, probably numerous other things I'm forgetting or not mentioning. And these are not uh, token engagements or contributions. They're, they're you know, generous and, and significant. Uh, explain the soft power dimension to your outreach in the United States and how does that fit with some of the themes you've been talking about today? Well, it's, it's really not that unusual if you have spent a significant amount of time in the Emirates and if you, if you were lucky enough to experience what it was like when Sheikh Zayed was alive, the founder of the UAE, who passed away in around 2004, his philosophy is it's, a, it's your responsibility to help people who are less fortunate than you. 
we are blessed with some wealth, we have some financial resources at our disposal, we need to be helping those who are less fortunate than us. And it could be anyone, anywhere, at any time. That approach to his um, style of leadership was something we all watched growing up. And you know, you know who would be really interesting for you to ask this question to is President Jimmy Carter. I remember meeting President Jimmy Carter about three years ago, and he was telling me stories about he how he became friends with Sheikh Zayed um, during his presidency, but then subsequently they've remained friends because Sheikh Zayed gave uh, a $10 million grant to the Carter Foundation to help eradicate guinea worm. Now that doesn't get any attention at all, but President Carter took that money and went to countries in Africa and around the world to help eradicate guinea worm. And I think where he, he said to me, he said, anywhere you go around the world, he said, I've always found a project that Sheikh Zayed has funded or financed to help that country anywhere around the world. And so I don't think what we've done here is any different than what we've done around the world is help those who need help. Put your politics and your ideology aside and just help the human being that you see in front of you in any way you can. I, 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 that's how I summarize our approach. In some cases, it's been, you know, tornadoes or hurricane hit strong uh, hit environments. In some cases, it's with medical institutions who help look after Emirati patients. And so there are always win-wins. And if you try to approach these problems as a win-win, it's amazing how far you can get. Ambassador, we've covered a lot of territory. It was a fascinating conversation, fantastic conversation for me. Uh, I learned a lot from you today. I feel like we, we could go on, but I'll let you go and get back to the work of diplomacy. But I thank you again for, for taking the time today. It was a great conversation, and we're delighted to have you on our El Monitor podcast. Thank you, Andrew. And, and as we all try to figure out what this world will look like after Corona, I keep thinking to myself sort of what was the last crisis we went through was the financial crisis in 08 and 09. And while it seemed traumatic and horrifying at the time, when we came out, we made the kinds of reforms that made the financial and the economic sector more stable. The regulations were improved. The liquidity was improved. People were becoming uh, much more responsible with the loans they made. And so we came out in a stronger place. We had a stronger economic and regulatory foundation after the financial crisis. I am confident that once we are out of the, this phase of the coronavirus, we will come out stronger. We will come out more resilient. We will come out more responsible and responsive, and we will be in better shape. But we just have to navigate through this next few months first. Absolutely. Pleasure talking with you today. Thank you, Andrew. Pleasure. We'll be right back with a few concluding remarks. If you're listening to this podcast, you obviously care about the Middle East. And if you do, you should probably be reading El Monitor. El Monitor is a global newsroom headquartered in Washington, D.C., with a network of over 160 contributors around the world. El Monitor offers first-class reporting and analysis from a range of perspectives and an approach that represents the highest journalistic standards, as well as an award-winning commitment to press freedom and independence. If you haven't done so already, visit us at elmonitor.com, check out our articles, and sign up for our free newsletters. There's a lot to choose from, 
including the Week in Review, an essay that offers unusual insights and forecasts into the region based upon Elmonitor's outstanding reporting. And if you haven't done so, please subscribe to our Elmonitor podcast on your favorite podcast platform on Israel with Ben Caspit and on the Middle East with me, Andrew Parasoliti. Welcome back to On the Middle East. Ambassador Olatayba's focus on the future and in seizing opportunity and crisis matters more than ever. A World Bank report released in February noted that by 2030, nearly two-thirds of the world's extreme poor will be living in fragile and conflict situations with a sizable share in the Middle East. Libya, Syria, and Yemen, of course, are all high-intensity conflicts, but there's also lots of concern about long-term stability in Iraq, Lebanon, and the West Bank and Gaza, according to the World Bank report. The kicker is that this report of a potentially chronic endemic fragility and poverty came out before the COVID-19 crisis. And, And since then, a UN report on the impact of the pandemic on food security, which the ambassador talked about, This report indicated that we're likely to see a jump in the number of poor in the region by 8.3 million, a rise in the number of malnourished by 2 million, meaning food insecurity will also likely increase as a result of COVID-19. So the prospect of state collapse and endemic conflict in the Middle East region during a global economic recession necessitates even bolder action, not just to deal with the acute calamities of COVID-19, but to think ahead about the post-pandemic phase and some of that we talked about here today. Thank you for listening to our podcast. I'm Andrew Parasoliti, and please sign up for both of our El Monitor podcasts on the Middle East and on Israel with Ben Caspit at your favorite podcast platform.